and welcome to episode 13 of Retro Game Audio. My name's Patrick. And I'm Steve. And what are we talking about today, Steve? Well, today we're talking about the N163, Namco's source of sound expansion for the Nintendo Famicom. Right. Um, this is another episode in our line of episodes uh, about Famicom's sound expansion. Uh, in episode 8, we explore the audio of the Famicom disk system. And in episode 10, we discussed Konami's VRC6 chip. Um, so now we're going to continue this discussion by looking at uh, the N163. So, as a quick refresher, the important difference between the NES and the Famicom was that the Famicom allowed additional audio to be routed through it and mixed with the normal Famicom slash NES audio that we're used to. Yeah, and as we've mentioned in previous episodes, uh, this wasn't very common. Like, if you pick a random game from the Famicom library, yeah. the odds are highly against it being one of these sound, uh, sound expansion games. Yeah, it makes them kind of special. I mean, like, even if one of those games isn't great and doesn't have great music either, the fact that it has sound expansion alone makes it noteworthy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, you do see a decent chunk of Famicom Disk System games that use the extra audio, um, but that was by far the most widely used. Like, all other sources of sound expansion didn't see a lot of use. The N163 would be the runner-up here, coming in second place by having its audio found in 10 games total. Uh, and these games, in chronological order of release, are Yokai do Chuki, Son Goku Shi Chugen no Hasha, Final Lap, Erika Tosatoru no Yume Boken, King of Kings, Rolling Thunder, Mappy Kids, Digital Devil Saga Megami Tensei 2, Namco Classic 2, and San Goku Shi 2 Hao no Tairiku. And so before we dive more into these games and the audio of the N163, let's take a step back and provide a little bit of history here. So Namco, now part of Bandai Namco today, and formerly Namco Bandai, is one of those <laughs> prolific companies that was highly successful during the golden age of arcade games. Uh, for example, I mean, <laughs> they made Pac-Man, Galaga, Dig Dug, Pole Position. Those are some pretty big games. Yeah, they're a major player in video gaming history and are still going strong today. Um, you know, I'm sure you could do like a whole episode on the company. There'd be a lot of things mm -hmm. to talk about. But I'd like to sort of narrow it in on and talk about like what sort of relates to this little part of the history that, you know, we're looking at. Yes. So they were highly successful in the early and mid-80s due to their strong presence in the arcade. And I guess it's worth mentioning that they also purchased Atari Japan to get in on that market as well. But by 1989, 40% of their sales uh, came from their Famicom and NES titles. So there was a period where there was an emphasis on producing Famicom titles. And what's interesting is that they were actually Nintendo's first licensee. Uh, and apparently had some privileged terms that other companies didn't have, uh, like the right to manufacture their own cartridges. Yeah, it's actually interesting because like <clears throat> a lot of the Namco or Namco products that you buy for the Famicom come in like a nice little case, like a little uh, like a plastic case. Their labels are different, and the cartridge design themselves are it, it does look different than a regular Famicom cartridge. Most of the other Famicom cartridges are are kind of the same and uniform kind of thing. I mean, it, it's weird too though. Like, why would that be like such a huge advantage? Do you think like that they could make their own cartridges or make their own cartridge design? I guess. I, I mean, I think it definitely helps. Helps like distinguish their product if they can mm -hmm. make it look different. So, you know, like it, when you found like a weird mm -hmm. tension looking cartridge and that would capture your eye. Yeah. Um, 
I feel like maybe that's sort of the case there that they wanted to, and you know, maybe it was cheaper too for them to manufacture their own carts. It's interesting too, because when I've been into, uh, when I was in Tokyo and I went to a lot of different gaming stores just to kind of look at the retro games and obviously buy a lot, um, a lot of the Namco based games are kind of put in their own spot. And when you walk through the Famicom section, they're all, all the little boxes, like the little uh, plastic boxes that they're in are all lined up. So they have like a special section. So it definitely stands out to me mm-hmm. uh, even today as being like its own special section of Namco games in these little like uh, plastic boxes. Yeah, that's cool. And I wonder if like their, their privileged terms, like did that freedom extend to making their own MMC chips or is that unrelated? Did you have any idea? Hmm. I wonder. I mean, it, it, it is interesting because I, I guess that because like, I mean, this, yeah, the, the sort of the sort of way I look at it is like I know that Nintendo of America was way more strict about letting companies use their own chips. Like mm-hmm. for example, uh, Contra in Japan used, I believe, is the VRC two chip, and yeah. that allowed that game to have stuff like uh, a world map in between levels and like some effects in the background art, like trees moving and stuff. Mm-hmm. And when the game came over to the U.S., they couldn't use their chip; they had to use one of Nintendo's that was like inferior. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know companies in Japan could use their own chips. Um, so like maybe it's not special that Namco got to use their own chips, but the reason it sort of stands out to me is when you look at other sound expansion games, mm-hmm. um, that weren't on the disc system, like all of those games are pretty much from like 1991 or later, right? Yeah. Huh. And, and the Namco games though, these, the N163 games we're going to look at come out in 1988. Yeah. Um, so I sort of wonder if, you know, maybe it's just due to their success and they had the resources to sort of make these more advanced chips or i wonder if that was part of the sort of freedom they had with nintendo is like maybe they sort of got uh in the door early like so to speak well i mean it's interesting because i always thought and i you know any anyone can correct me in the comments this but i always thought there was kind of like nintendo frowned like as you said nintendo frowned upon this and i thought that like konami making their own chips was kind of like oh they did it but like we're not too happy about that and I think I've read that a couple different places, probably in Retro Gamer. But there, there was some kind of tension between creating these. So um, I would imagine that Namco being the first to commit to being a licensee to Nintendo probably had extra privileges. And that probably gave them the ability to kind of circumvent some rules here and there, I have to think. Right. That, that, that definitely seems like a possibility, at least. So. Oh, and so just to clarify for the listeners, if you didn't hear us talk about this in the VRC6 episode, these MMC chips were chips inside Famicom and NES cartridges that extended the abilities of the games they uh, were used in. And they gave it better processing, more assets, uh, all sorts of stuff that made games like Super Mario 3 so much bigger and much more involved uh, than Super Mario Bros. 1. Yeah, so the primary purpose of these chips found in these cartridges didn't relate to the audio. Uh, mm-hmm. It just happens that some of these chips offered sound expansion, and in some cases, even the ones that do are sometimes uh, using games that don't bother using extra audio. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the case with Namco's uh, you know 163 chip that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's part of a family of related and similar uh, MMC chips from Namco. Um, but you know, the N163 in particular is the one responsible for sometimes adding extra audio to games. Uh, there's a resource I found on the NES dev wiki, which lists all the games that use Namco's various MMC chips. And you can see that there's something close to 20 games that use the N163. But as we mentioned earlier, only 10 of them use the extra audio channels. Yeah. And there's a really neat column uh, on that page that includes the found mixing resistors for the sound expansion games. Uh, which is something I hadn't seen or even known about before. Uh, We'll link to it in the comments here. 
I think this would be a good time to transition into discussing the audio of the N163, starting with what you just mentioned, the audio mixing. Um, the volume levels of the N163, relative to the normal audio channels of the Famicom, sometimes varied from game to game. Like if you program the same instruments and had to play them from different cartridges, the volume can actually be different. Yeah, for example, um, that page we just mentioned uh, says that King of Kings uses a 4.7K resistor, while Rolling Thunder makes use of a 22K resistor. And you also see 10K and 15K resistors listed for other games in there as well. So uh, it's, I think it's just kind of inter- interesting that it wasn't consistent. Uh, you know, I had no idea about that. I mean, it, it could just be that they were trying different things out because a lot of it is really loud. <laughs> Like, really loud. Um, like, uh, if you hear some of the uh, N163 audio in some of the games, and some of it's a little softer. So, you know, there's only a 10 games that were made with this, and I think they were trying different things out. I mean, we'll get some more of that later, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also reading another page from the NES Dev Wiki uh, that briefly goes into how trying to figure out how to handle the audio mixing and emulation uh, can be problematic. Because it's sort of, they were sort of like thinking out loud mm-hmm. like the different ways you might handle it. It's like, do you keep it simple and go for a mix that's kind of in the middle and might sound okay for most of the games? Or do you build a list for your emulator that'll specifically recognize each individual game and like, you know, adjust the volume accordingly? Yeah, it, it, that's sort of like a deeper level that's often uh, glossed over when it comes to emulating. There's always some kind of detail that could be more accurate. Right. But yeah, but someone programming an NES emulator probably doesn't have the time or resources to do such a deep dive, which makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, exactly. Like it's just to perfect something so esoteric, you know, like it's not going to be worth the trouble for most people, understandably. Yeah, who's going to notice, you know? Exactly. (laughs) All right. So with the volume mixing quirks out of the way, let's talk about what the N163 audio actually is. So if you remember back to the Famicom Disk System episode, that sound expansion offered one additional channel of wavetable synthesis. The N163 also offers wavetable synthesis, but it actually has up to eight channels instead of just one. Wow, so it's like having eight Famicom Disk Systems to make music with. And that sounds more impressive than it actually is, but that's sort of true. Right. There is a difference in the bit depth of the wavetable audio, you know, compared to the (laughs) FDS. We mentioned that the FDS uh, audio had a bit depth of six, meaning that Mm -hmm. like when you have what's essentially a bar graph to draw your waveform in, uh, it gives you a y-axis with 64 possible values. Yeah. And by contrast, the N163 only has a bit depth of four which results in the y-axis only having 16 possible values. It's actually identical to the Game Boy's wave channel in that regard, which is lower quality of resolution than the Famicom Disk System's wave table. So that kind of sucks. Yeah, and I mean, these numbers probably don't mean much by themselves, but to mm-hmm. illustrate the difference, we'll start with the Famicom Disk System um, playing a sine wave, followed by the N163 playing a nearly identically shaped sine wave. So you can hear that the FDS is capable of a smoother sound, while the N163 is a bit buzzier uh, due to not having as many values to, like, ascend or descend. Yeah. There's something pretty neat and different about the Namco 163 uh, regarding the length of the instruments you can make. Uh, The FDS wavetable had 64 steps to work with, while the Game Boy has 32. The N163, you can change it to whatever you want in increments of four. Yeah, so your waveform can be as short as four steps long. Uh, that would be ridiculously short. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Or it can be as long as 240. Or, well, there's one source that says it can go up to 256, but OCC Famitracker only allows up to 240, so I'm not totally sure what the max really is. 
Well, either way, it's somewhere in the 200s, you know, <laughs> it's versus the 32 or, you know, 64. Right. Yeah, so we, we, yeah, we get the idea. And yeah. um, I, I think the reason for this is kind of interesting. Um, the longest length ever used in a game was only 64. Hmm. Uh, but the reason that wasn't a hard limit is because different instruments were essentially stored within this one longer chain of memory. So let's say you have an instrument that's 32 steps and another that's 16 steps. Uh, so the first instrument gets placed at step zero and ends at 31. And the second instrument could be placed so that it starts at step 32 and ends at 47. Yeah, so basically different instruments simply loop smaller sections of this one longer chain. And you can pick the instrument's lengths and their position in the chain. That's right. And you don't have to loop a, a smaller section if you don't want. I mean, that'd be the normal thing to do. Uh, mm-hmm. But you could just use the entire space to make one stupidly long waveform. That's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's strange. Is there actually any benefit to using most of that space to make one long instrument? I mean, the downside, of course, is that you've used up the space, so you're stuck with less instruments to choose from, but like... Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's one positive that I can think of. And so let's say you wanted to make a jagged, buzzy sort of sound. Okay, cool. Yeah, let's do it. So you can do that by drawing a waveform that's kind of random and like has leaps going up and down, you know, to mm-hmm. not make a smooth sound. And though remember that the higher in pitch you go, the faster you're looping that waveform. And as things go faster, they tend to get smoothed out. <clears throat> that's right. We have an example of a 16-step waveform that sounds jaggy and buzzy at lower pitches, but it's pretty smooth at high pitches. So if you wanted to make buzzy sounds at a higher pitch, using a longer waveform helps, because in a way you're basically fighting against the effect of it speeding up. Um, like It has a lot more content to get through, so it doesn't get smoothed out as well. So uh, here's an example of a 240-step waveform that maintains a buzzy sound at higher pitches. But this would be sort of an unconventional use for the channel, because as you said earlier, the longest waveforms used at the time were only 64 steps. That's right, and even those aren't very common. Um, most instruments found in the N163 games are usually uh, just 16 or 32 steps in length. Oh, and so earlier we mentioned that the N163 offers up to eight channels of audio, but even this is something that's variable. Yeah, the games are divided into two categories, um, ones that just use four extra channels of audio and those that use all eight. There's only two games that use all eight channels, and even then, it's not uncommon for the four-channel ones to use mostly two for music, while the other two sit around reserved mostly for sound effects. Yeah, and so what this means is that while the N163 offers up to eight channels of additional audio, you can't expect to go digging through the N163 library and actually hear a lot of that. The majority of it is going to be like two to three extra channels of music. Yeah, and it, I mean, it doesn't have to be just four or eight channels exactly. Family Tracker allows you to pick any number of channels between one and eight. Yeah, that's right. So we have all the basics of N163 audio down, but before we move on, there are a few quirks worth mentioning. The N163 doesn't actually blend the sound of all its channels together. It actually has to swap between them at an extremely fast rate to make it sound like they're all playing at once. But according to the NES Dev Wiki, anything with six or fewer channels will cycle through them faster than any audible frequency, so you won't notice it. So what that means is there actually is a drawback to using all eight channels uh, in that the cycling of channels moves into the audible range and creates an undesirable noise. 
the whirring, as I refer to it, it's yeah. a whir. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Apparently, the RF output of the Famicom helps reduce the noise because the RF output acts as a low-pass filter. But if you use any AV out uh, to a TV that doesn't filter out high frequencies, the noise can be loud and unpleasant. There's a couple compo- uh, chiptune composers I know who actually like the whirring, and you know, uh, t- uh, to Mr. Wimmer out there, no, just don't, please stop using the whirring. You know, you know what it is. I'm gonna make an entire Pulse Channel Kick, uh, you know, compilation of whirring for you, just so you can enjoy it. Oh, I hate the whirring, man. No whirring. It's a whirring-free zone. Oh, and like, just in case the listeners are thinking, oh, that doesn't sound too bad. Um, it depends on what you're listening through, like. I can't hear it too well through my laptop speakers, but I can hear it through headphones and some other speakers that I have pretty well. So it's like a bit of a cruncher were um, on the overall sound. And actually, you won't hear it in emulation. Like um, NSF Play and uh, Family Tracker won't play the hum. So it's all, you'll only hear it through hardware. And so this actually kind of relates to something um, interesting we were talking about before off podcast that I didn't know about. Yeah. Um, and so... Earlier, we mentioned that the N163 was part of a family of chips um, mm-hmm. from Namco, you know, different MMC chips. Uh, and But the N163 is the only one that used expansion audio. But there's like a weird thing, right, with one of the previous chips? What's, what's up yeah. with that again? So I was talking to I'm a Track Man, um, and he was saying if we were going to do an N163 episode that we need to talk about the N129. Okay, so the, the N129 is just one of their other MMC chips or mappers or whatever. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of in the same family. Um, and in fact, when we send that list of just kind of all the games that used it and kind of had the mapper, it's on there. Yeah. Uh, it, it has, there's a nice list of it. Um, but I hadn't, I mean, if you search N129 or Namco 129, there's like nothing about this chip. It apparently was only used in Namco Star Wars, um, which oh, is okay. like, which is like actually a pretty fun game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, it's, it's like uh, the one all right uh, Star Wars game on the NES. Yeah, it's I, I was playing through it because uh, I thought, you know, oh, it has the 129. It's going to have expansion audio. It doesn't, of course. But for whatever reason, the N129 was had the capability of doing that. So it's kind of like, I guess, and, uh, you know, I'm a track man. Please, in the comments, if, I, if I'm framing this wrong, please let me know. But it's kind of like the predecessor to the N163. It was used, put in the Star Wars cart kind of early, and then kind of not in the Star Wars cart. So it was kind of replaced. And it was also capable of using eight channels, similar to how uh, the N163 was. So it's kind of like Namco was experimenting or or something. I'm not really quite sure. Okay. Uh, the fact that it even exists is it was new to me. Uh, I mean, and like I said, Google it, you'll find nothing. Uh, so <laughs> I managed to actually find, and this is really cool. Off the, uh, I guess the let me just pull this up on the NES Dev uh, forums here that someone had actually taken and managed to get. Um, you know, uh, the Star Wars cart, and then I guess probably using the TN- TNS HFC or one of those kind of, uh, you know, those nice uh, Japanese uh, sound chip boards or whatever, mm-hmm. was able to take and route N163 music through the N129 to hear what it would sound like. And um, it 
it's very special. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it, I was just listening to this a moment ago. It sounds really messed up. It's like it has yeah. the capability to sort of do this, but it's not quite working right. So, um, yeah, this user, uh, Nurukuro, is the one who documented it and shared all of these uh, audio samples. Let's listen to one of his uh, samples here. It's interesting because, like, it feels like it's. I mean, and again, we don't know anything about like what, the, how to, how you actually program the, for the N one six three. This could be feeding commands to the N one two nine that don't make any sense, you know, like because of the way that it's it's set up architecturally. Yeah, that could explain why it sounds like not just bad, but like some mm-hmm. things could be giving the wrong commands and not working right. I think I think so. It's just interesting though that like, and you know, we love talking about this like you know really obscure. Uh, kinds of things it's just interesting that one it exists and two it had a voice that was never used yeah um and i think that that's kind of the, the coolest part about it. i love that kind of stuff and i'm uh thank you i'm a track man for pointing that out that's something honestly i had no clue about so yeah me neither so that's yeah. that's great i'm glad we got to learn of that before recording this episode so thank you yeah thanks oh yeah and something we almost uh, forgot to mention here too is that he had also told you before um, you know, more about the origin of the chip that, you know, we learned that like maybe the 129 was um, where it was coming from, from the Famicom, but that uh, Namco had some experience prior with some similar stuff that, you know, the N163 was basically an eight channel version of their three channel arcade chip, uh, the CUS, yeah. um, CUS 15. So what's, uh, what's the deal with that? So yeah, there was a lot of different Namco chips. Um, probably their most popular one is the Namco WSG. Um, it was a sample. It, it supported sample-based synthesis of three channels of single-cycle wavetable and with four-bit wavetable samples, which is kind of similar to what we're dealing with here. And this was used in Pac-Man. So we've all heard this chip before. Oh yeah, <laughs> surprisingly. Um, they also had another one, which was Namco Custom Chip or Namco CUS30. And the CUS30 was paired with the Yamaha 2151, the legendary arcade board. But it was eight uh, eight channels of wavetable synthesis. So they had kind of like this in the arcade, which would make a lot of sense as to why they moved it to the Famicom. Most of, I mean, I, I always thought that Pac-Man actually was just like set tones or something. But to hear that it actually was wavetable synthesis is very interesting, actually. Yeah. Um, and so Namco had experience with this. Um, so I guess that's, that would make a lot of sense that they'd move that to the Famicom. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so let's move on to finally take a closer look at the N163 soundtracks. So we're going to go through the list of games chronologically as we listed them out earlier. We begin with Yokai Dochuki, a game that came out in June of 1988. It was developed by Now Production, a name that probably isn't recognizable to most listeners, but they did the Jackie Tam game for NES and Splatterhouse uh, Wanpaku Graffiti game for uh, Famicom, if that helps some context as to who made this. But there's not much to talk about here. Um... As being the first entry here, it actually only uses the extra audio for sound effects. 
Um, so it's not in the music at all. And uh, here's what they sound like. Oh yeah, and that, that would be a good time to mention that um, if you want to look along at the waveforms used in these games, you can, because I made like an Amjurd album uh, of just screenshots of the shapes of the waveforms and their instrument data if you want to replicate them in Famitracker. Uh, I documented everything from every game, so you can just sort of see what they used. And uh, the one thing I missed, though, was this first example here. I didn't realize... Uh, it even existed because I was looking up list of N163 mm -hmm. games before and it's almost always left out because it didn't yeah. use, because it didn't use it in the music. So I just sort of like I didn't learn that until after I like ripped everything else. So I have to go back and add that in, you know, maybe by the time the episode's up, it'll actually be in there. But um, for now, I just have it in the nine soundtrack. So, yeah, I mean, it's actually funny because. I only thought there were nine. So when you sent me the list and there were 10, I'm like, what? Yeah. So it, it surprised me too. Like, I'm glad I found that digging around. Cause yeah, that's, that's, I was, is not on my radar at all. I, I, I collect like anything that has expansion audio and I didn't collect this one cause it wasn't on the list. Ooh, so, was, so you got to hunt it down then. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. Another <laughs> thing to spend money on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so getting back on track here, the next uh, game that uses uh, N163 audio would be San Goku Shi Chugen no Hasha. Uh, which came out one month later in July 1988. It was also developed by Toze. soundtrack has a lot of tracks that only use one of the extra channels or none at all uh just using the base famicon audio the 2AO3 uh but the track we just played winds up using two of the extra voices together towards the end it's a title theme and is probably the strongest track in the whole game yeah moving on the third game to use namco 163 audio is final lap uh released in august of 1988 Final Lap is a port of Namco's successful arcade game of the same name. Um, there's not much to say about the Famicom port, but the arcade game is interesting because it was considered revolutionary at the time for its multiplayer. It allowed up to eight players uh, to race each other by linking four two-player arcade units. Yeah, the Famicom port was developed by Arc System Works, uh, whose name I didn't recognize, and I sort of mistakenly assumed they were kind of like a nobody. Because like in the lineup of N163 games, they do a couple ports of Namco arcade games. So I thought of them as just kind of like helping Namco get some of their titles on the NES and maybe they didn't do much else. Um, but Steve, like you like Double Dragon on the Sega Master System. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. It's my favorite. Yeah, that, that's also Arc System Works. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to say, yeah. So there's that. But more importantly, uh, these are the Guilty Gear and Blaze Blue guys. Um, so, like, they eventually get really good at the whole 2D fighting thing. Th- those games, man, by the way, Guilty Gear and Blaze Blue have some of the best music. I can't even tell you. I remember like, they're, like, super, like, shreddy, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like... It's like cheesy, like Japanese, like metal and rock. It, oh, it's so great! It is like so perfect. I I have that. That's like one of my workout mixes. It's usually a bunch of that. And I didn't play half of those games. I just used the music for working. Oh, out. that's it's funny. Like best. Yeah. <laughs> In September of 1988, we see the fourth game to use the N163 audio. Erika to Satoru no Yumi Balkan. This game was developed by Atlas, and this is a special one because it's one of the two games to use all eight sound channels. So we have two names credited for this soundtrack. Uh, there's Sukasa Masuko and Hirohiko Takayama. Um, they're both credited as composers. Like I didn't get too much information on this, but I think you said uh, that um, Sukasa was probably more of the sound programmer. Yeah, he he was Atlas. He was. I think he did. I'm, I'm pretty sure he did some actual soundtracks. Someone can correct me on that. But he was no, more known for the fact that he was one of Atlas's sound programmers. Uh, Takayama was the composer or lead composer on a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. And I think that I read somewhere, and I think it was on Video Game Music Preservation Fund, that Masako's particular kind of uh, programming tool that he used lended very well to use of the N163. So it just happened to be a happy marriage of, you know, the tool he was using, the program for the 2AO3, also worked well on the N163. Um, There's just so little information about these two. Hmm. But they were like very, I guess they're like understated <clears throat> in their importance um, in, in the, being able to use these chips and whatnot. Yeah, because I mean, they definitely had a leg up on the competition because they're going to, and you'll see this a couple games from now, the two of them are the only people that worked on the two eight channel uh, N163 games. So th- yeah. these guys definitely <clears throat> knew what they were doing. I believe I've read an anecdote and I, you know, I was saying that I, I told you this offline, but, and I've been trying to find where I've read it, but there was some interview with Hirohiko Takayama where he in general talks about the fact that he was overjoyed to work without this limitation to, to have the full power of the chip um, and that yes. him and uh, Masako were worked together to make sure they did. Um, I really wish if anyone can find that interview, i I swear I read this uh, either on a source from Video Game Music Preservation Fund or somewhere around there. So if any of you guys uh, remember that source, remember that interview, I'd love to uh, reread it. I, I read it a couple years ago. So, And if we find it during the editing of the episode too, we'll of course link it in the comments. Yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to, I need to do a deeper dive. I didn't try to check their names in Japanese. I only did it in English. So that would be the next case. So. Uh, okay, gotcha. The game itself is interesting. I know we're not talking a lot about the games, but uh, it's a very ambitious game. Um, the way it's laid out is very interesting. It has uh, 
like a sort of it's like an adventure rpg kind of mm -hmm. game and it has like in a typical adventure game like the bottom half of the screen is like commands and different things to click on um but the top of the screen is like your dragon warrior sort of top down like overworld map sort of thing uh but it's a two-player game yeah. and players one and two each have their own window and they scroll independently like it, you can play mm -hmm. the game simultaneously and but you know most two-player games like you're confined to the same screen at the same time uh, and that's not the case here like you can be in the same place at the same time and see each other if you're in the same spot but you can wander off and go somewhere else yeah, I was watching the. I think I saw a lot of the gameplay in Crontendo, which was a. It's a great source for a lot of to see some of these games. I, and I own the game, but it's like impossible to play because it's all in Japanese. I've watched the intro a couple of times and mm -hmm. turned it off. Right, that's about the extent yeah. of my playing the game. I'm I'm just um, super impressed by that because like of course yeah. you know it's using a much smaller screen size because again the bottom half mm -hmm. of the screen is not you know it's not a full screen doing that. Um, but nonetheless, I mean when you consider the limitations of the system. And then, you know, these guys make a game with, like, the sound expansion chip that uses all eight channels. It's got mm -hmm. this simultaneous two players. They can wander off to their own places in the map if they feel like it. Like, that's really impressive. I mean, and think about when this is. This is 1988. Yeah. This isn't, like, 90, 91. This is 88. So they were doing some cool things. I I'm also assuming that the MMC from the N163, the abilities of the chip itself, allowed for that yeah oh absolutely so, like they, they took advantage of everything they had which is so cool yeah like you know uh and i could just see him like you know let's just put all eight channels in there and have as much scrolling and crazy stuff as possible i love when uh you know developers and teams can get together and be like no let's just turn this up to 11 exactly you know? and i feel that, like they were able to do that that's yeah. what the game looks like like i think it's good that you remembered the year that it came out because i forgot to bring that up as well um I'm trying to think of like other games coming out towards, you know, the end of 88. Like this has to be easily one of the most advanced Famicom games uh, at this point, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just looking down the big list of in kind of uh, chronological order here. So it beats Mario 3 by a month. Um, so it's before Mario 3. Um, it comes out around the same time, actually, as Maniac Mansion, which we covered in another episode. It beats Ninja Gaiden. Uh, Ninja Gaiden uh, had come out a little bit later. It beats Final Fantasy 2. Yeah, so you definitely get the sense that Namco is like a little bit ahead of the curve here. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. Oh, yeah. And one other thing we should mention about this game is that it has this notorious Easter egg in it where one of the developers left a rant hidden in the game. Um you have to like perform some like ridiculous button input i think at the end of the game um yeah i think it was only found by people like you know data mining the game like you know mm -hmm. i think it was discovered that way uh initially and uh he leaves like this vulgar rant in here really calling out some of his co-workers and everything um it's ridiculous no yeah it's one of the like real legendary and probably like most vulgar things that's <laughs> slip past quality control uh and some of these things and we'll just post a link to it here i mean some of this stuff is like wait 55 minutes then after the, the music suddenly stops then on controller one press a b start select and left and yeah. a b right on controller two at the same time and then you know what i mean like so they, they really 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 hit it um so also kind of hidden in there is the the remixed version or like a slightly different version of the first stage of the karate kid 
And both of those games, uh, both uh, Erika and Satoru and this game were composed by Hirohika Takayama. And that game isn't actually in the game at any particular point. So someone program he programmed this into the game, even yeah, though it, it wasn't in the game. That's part of the message is he responds to it. Like when the text props up, it says like, mm, that's a nostalgic song playing. Those were good times. But yeah. then it all goes down from there. Like, me- like, meanwhile, who the hell are all of the people with this project? I'm so glad it's over. And he does have some positive words uh, for Takayama. I think he credits him at the end of like, yeah, the pe- end, the people yeah. he liked working with. Mm-hmm. But stuff in there earlier is like calling people out for he claims that like they didn't shower after having sex uh, the previous yeah. night. It, it gets it's like really it's really. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, definitely worth a read if you've never seen it before. So <laughs> we'll yeah. link it here. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so next up is the fifth game on our list, King of Kings. It came out in December of 1988, and it's the other Atlas game that makes use of all eight channels. It's funny because we just played that track and you guys might remember that track from one of our uh, Name That Game uh, segments um, where we tried to stump you guys with it. And we did for a little bit, actually. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, all things considered, that's a great track. And Atlas just seems to know how to rock the N163 audio better than anywhere else, frankly. Yeah. In my head, there's basically four N163 soundtracks that stand out above the rest. And three of them are by Atlas. Uh, you know, so no disagreements there. And uh, so one sound design thing I want to point out um, is how the extra voices can be used to help build effects rather than all just making their own melodies. So uh, take a close listen to the bass line in this track, especially when it hits higher pitch notes. hear the sort of out of tune phasing in the sound uh it also applies to the lead voices doing the echoey part uh, but my opinion sounds 
coolest in the bassline, and uh, it sounds like someone detuning an oscillator on a synthesizer, something you can't do with just one monophonic voice or sound channel normally. Um, so what they did is they simply doubled up all of the voices that you heard with another slightly out-of-tune copy. Um, and that's something you wouldn't have the space for with fewer sound channels. So I think it's a good demonstration of them finding ways to take advantage of having more sound channels. Yeah, I mean, it's a cool effect, but it's also kind of a shame how they ignore the original Famicom sound channels, which, I mean, yeah. you know, they only pretty much use the noise. And it, I, I, it's funny because, like, you could have had, if you're going for it and you're going to use all these eight channels, you could have had 11-channel polyphony, yeah. which would have been insane. But, it, you know, it's just like you went I, – I really wish that they had done that. You know, and I think I've written – years ago on my old blog something to that effect is like what would 11 channel polyphony sounded like on the n163 <laughs> it was like the biggest question in my mind <laughs> and, yeah we've talked about this before too because like in the vrc6 episode how they didn't touch the triangle wave um it's a reoccurring thing in a lot of these sound expansion um soundtracks like they don't always use everything together they sometimes leave channels out and i think maybe it's to focus more on the newer sounds they invested in yeah I mean, it probably is because it's pro that's probably the selling point. Like, if you look at the back of like King of Kings or any of these particular games, it advertises that it has a like a you know a special sound chip in it, etc., etc., etc. So they're trying to use that as like the the draw a little bit. So I, I guess they're using that, and I really feel like you know I'm in the Konami's case, they're probably just like you know the <laughs> the triangle doesn't have a volume envelope. Why are we playing around with this? Let's do something else. Um, let, let's use the sawtooth uh, to kind of replace it. Right. So I, I, there's probably whether it's either uh, my two theories would be one, it's the engine that they're actually using or the driver they're actually using to make the sound work. So maybe it's just a pain in the neck to balance both of them. Uh, and two, it's probably just like, yes, let's show it off. Like you just said, I think. Yeah. And the best way to show it off is to not have it compete for you. Just don't put yeah. the old sounds in there at all sort of thing. Mm -hmm. The sixth game that uses N163 audio is Rolling Thunder, the other Arc System title in the list. It was originally released in March of 1989. This game was actually also released in the U.S. on the NES by Tengen, uh, but that version doesn't have the extra sound channels, of course. Uh, and you can really hear the difference. Uh, we have an example of the jingle from the Famicom version followed by the NES version. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Exactly. Wow. Um, there's not much to say about the selection as far as the music goes, but I do like track seven with its ridiculous triangle lead, uh, and it builds up quite nicely towards the end.
Um, so Rolling Thunder is another arcade conversion. It has a weird mm-hmm. art style to it where they're very like tall and like kind of skinny sprites, like all the characters in it. They have a weird look to them. Um, mm-hmm. So it's like a weird side-scrolling beat-em-up sort of thing. Um, but I just think it's funny. Like Again, we, we were just talking about this before with how they wind up doing Guilty Gear later on. But you see stuff like Rolling Thunder as like their early dabbling in 2d fighting stuff and i guess you know they're double dragon on the uh, sega master system so it's funny like looking up video of these games and being like these guys go on to do uh guilty year and just the gulf yeah. between them is you know as big as uh, you know there can be yeah absolutely all right so moving on uh the next up uh that uses the n163 would be mappy kids What's interesting is this game was actually developed by Namco. Yeah, that's kind of interesting because, like, you've heard us mention different developers for all of the games thus far. Um, even though we talk about this being the Namco chip, you know, the Namco 163. Um, but they're also a game publisher, so it's sort of like they are the ones that are bringing this family of games together and getting these other developers to use their sound expansion. And they're not using them themselves that much, which I find kind of interesting. So it's interesting because I mean, like, I guess if you're the publisher and you're you're kind of trying to find a product that someone developed and you're going to push it out and you're going to put it in your special format, it's kind of like you're leasing their assets, I guess. And that's kind of something similar that Yamaha would do with their sound chips. Uh, in a lot of those cases, I mean, Yamaha owned FM; they owned a lot of different chips. So I've read articles about Atari saying this is great, and this arcade board we're going to be able to put this Yamaha chip on here, and this is very exciting, and this is so cool. Um, or you know, we'll have this technology for there. So it's like, yeah, okay, you know, if if you are Namco an and you're making your own first party games and you're trying to attract developers, you can be like, hey, we got this sound chip. You come over here, you'll use it, and I'm fairly certain that's what atlas did atlas is like hey we get this sound chip yeah man let's do it and those guys turned it you know tried to use every asset and ability of it like almost instantly yeah. you know to, with, with success varying levels of success so i think that, that had something to do with it it's just interesting that namco didn't use it themselves i mean was it for lack of tools was it for lack of interest uh well, i'm not sure yeah or if maybe at the time they focused more on developing arcade that might be the other half of it is that maybe a lot of their output for the nes was just primarily being as a publisher uh just for various reasons who knows and it's interesting too i mean uh, so mappy kids is out in december of 1989 and bear in mind the previous uh, namco 163 title came out back in march so, you know, getting to the financial end of all of this, we see this swift drop off in titles compared to 1988, which saw a steady release of games throughout the year. So earlier in the episode, we mentioned that Namco had some privileged terms with Nintendo, uh, but those were lost upon renewal of their contract. And this really soured the relationship between Namco and Nintendo. Um, Masaya Nakamura, the founder of Namco, publicly criticized Nintendo for its monopolistic behavior. And around this time, they announced that they were going to support the Sega Genesis uh, heading into the 16-bit generation. Yeah, just kind of as an aside, it was kind of like, okay, now we're going to support the Genesis. You know, definitely giving Nintendo the middle finger, like, hey, you guys are way too strict and we didn't like this last deal, so goodbye. And so I'm not totally sure on the exact timeline of this, but I get the impression that the the contract renewal that soured the relationship with Nintendo 
probably goes hand in hand with the decline of output here. You know, that you're only seeing two games total in 1989 uh, compared to 1988, which had a bunch. I think so. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. From the history I read, that seems to be pretty accurate. And so anyways, uh, getting back to Mappy Kids, uh, there is one track I like from it. Uh, it is track eight from the NSF. No, let's give it a listen. Now we're on to our eighth title out of ten. This is Digital Devil Story Megami Tensei 2, and it came out in April of 1990. So this was the last of the three Atlas titles in the N163 library. It doesn't use all eight channels like the other two Atlas games, <clears throat> but it does use the base Famicom channels a lot more. So it doesn't sound like it's really missing that much. Yeah, it's like I'm glad they finally figured out. It's like, oh, we can still use those channels. Um, and it sounds great. And I like the soundtrack just as much as those other two, if not more, actually. Like, I feel like, I, <laughs> you know, I've always gave the other ones a closer look because they're the noteworthy ones. Like, oh, they use all the channels. Um, mm-hmm. but I've been listening to the soundtrack more recently, you know, while preparing for this episode. And I definitely like this one as much, at least. So there's a bunch of really cool tracks in it. Um, let's give a couple of them a listen. So our ninth entry into the uh, Namco 163 soundtracks 
would be Namco Classic 2. It came out in March 13th, 1992 by Tosei. So uh, this is, as you just said, March of 1992. This is already like two years later than the previous game. Uh, Digital Devil Story came out in April of 1990. Uh, so I think it's kind of interesting. You know, again, this is because of the soured relationship with Nintendo, most likely. Um, and uh, But, you know, they still have a few games trickling out. Uh, you know, who knows if it's they just saw it as an opportunity to make some more money still, even if it wasn't their preferred business partnership or who knows if maybe the developer um wanted to you know maybe they've worked with a publisher before and said hey we've got another famicom game in the works and they're you know um there could be a factor of any number of reasons why these games are still trickling out um at this point so yeah the the composer for this game or the two composers listed are uh, akihito hayashi akihito hayashi uh did this game and a couple like pretty non-notable titles uh, in, but, you know, just has actually a pretty decent list of things that uh, he worked on. Uh, but he's mostly known for using the same drum loop in almost every one of his songs. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> to the point where it's like he's just kind of taken them. The other person listed here is Shinji Amagishi. And Shinji Amagishi is actually someone of, of note, um, was kind of a sound developer uh, for Tose, and then actually left for Capcom, uh, like kind of after that. Uh, and was the sound effects designer for all the Mega Man Battle Network games, pretty much. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. yeah, and also did Star Force and Star Force 2, uh, and also The Misadventures of Trombone, and like a bunch of titles. Like, also worked on Mega Man 8 Anniversary Edition for PS1. Um, Minish actually worked for Nintendo a little bit with Legend of Zelda The Minish Cap, which I believe was published under Capcom. So, oh, um, yeah. <clears throat> So it's pretty cool. So like that's interesting. It's the first game he ever worked on. Yeah, and it's odd because that's that's what I read too in the history looking him up that this would be the first thing he worked on. Um mm-hmm. the NSF for the first San Gokushi game um credits him. But I think that's a mistake because he works on the next one coming up. Uh so maybe someone just saw his name attached to the to that series and applied it to the game from 1988 but i'm pretty sure this is like his entry into into doing the video game music thing so yeah i mean according to his bio he said he started composing game music in 91 yeah so, okay so he's, he definitely wasn't on the first song goku yeah that, that's and that's his official bio so that would make sense but we just found something out so it isn't him even though it's credited on there someone should fix that yeah fix the ends um, up yeah <laughs> please fix it yep <laughs> but i mean that's a good guess though i think because there was only a couple of tose composers so yeah um there's another track from uh, Namco Classic 2 that I kind of like. Uh, it has something in it where like one of the voices is like a little bit delayed or out of time. Um, I actually haven't cross-checked it with the game ROM yet. Like, part of me wonders if it's like a slight error in the NSF or if it's just written that way. I mean, I actually still think it sounds good even with the part out of time. And then when it gets to the next section of the song, it writes itself. Um, let's give it a listen. Like that little melody there is just like it's lagging or something. Something's a little strange like, about it. 
it's like how I like in jazz, like you call something like in the pocket, but maybe a little too in the pocket. Right. Um, <laughs> maybe maybe that was the goal. Maybe it was an intentional. Thing. No, yeah. I mean it almost sounds intentional. I wonder if it sounds like that in the game. It doesn't sound bad though. It just sounds like a little uncomfortable. Yeah. But but if but like it fixes itself because once it gets if the whole if it was like that the whole time I'd feel like something's wrong. But once it gets tight in like the chorus or whatever you call that section, it's like oh you know it, it, that that the herky jerkiness resolves itself. So yeah, absolutely. Um, so now we are on to the tenth and final N one six three game. This is San Goku Shi Two Haru no Tairiku, and it came out in June of nineteen ninety two. This is also a Tose game, and again composed by Shinji Amagishi. So earlier I had mentioned that there were like sort of four N163 soundtracks that stand out above the rest to me. Um, you know, there were the three Atlas soundtracks and then there's also this one. And uh, is this a cool soundtrack? I'm glad I discovered it in preparing for this episode because it's one that I never really listened to too closely before. Um, but it has a bunch of cool tracks in it. Uh, the weird thing though, sound design wise, and you can see this in the album I made of the instruments, all of their instruments in this are just recreations of the two AO3 pulse channels. Oh, interesting. So they have wavetable synthesis available, but they only use those wavetable voices to recreate the 12.5%, the 25%, and the 50% duty cycle. So everything you hear throughout the soundtrack is just like duplicates of the normal NES channels. So it's kind of a strange choice. Yeah, that is strange. Um, but it, I mean, the music is great and it sounds great. So it, it's not really missing out because of that. Let's give uh, a couple tracks from it a uh, listen.
So as we like to do, we also like to include a modern uh, usage of these extra sound channels. So um, Steve, I think you had a track picked out. Yeah, I mean, I've used it a little bit, and I'm kind of embarrassed with my own work because nah, man, it's your not, music's it's great. great. I think, but, you, I, mean, I think your music's excellent. Well, thanks. I mean, but not with N163 stuff. I can tell you that I'm pretty embarrassed of most of my N163 stuff. Um, but one of my favorite N16C tracks is actually by Fear of Dark. It's Hopeless Romantic. Uh, and we'll link that here and we'll play a little bit now. Cool. So back when we recorded the Game Boy episode, um, I'm a Trackman pointed out this tool to me that I didn't know existed. Uh, it's a thing that you can use to uh, import Game Boy music into Fama Tracker. Uh, of course, you know the Game Boy and the NES have very different sound uh, parameters, especially when it comes to like the wavetable channel. That's something the NES doesn't have, but the N163 uh, it has the same bit depth as the Game Boy wavetable and has variable length. So you can make that the same as the Game Boy wavetable as well. So what it does is it imports the Game Boy music to make use of the N163 channel. It'll just use one of the channels um, to replicate the Game Boy wavetable. And it actually works incredibly well. Um, you know, the NES has other differences from the Game Boy, like the noise channel isn't identical. So like there's some approximations there, like it, it picks a the nearest pitch equivalent, I guess. Um but I'll play here a bit of an example. This is an Alberto Gonzalez tune imported into Famatracker. Uh, everything sounds great, but when the notes get to where they're supposed to do a vibrato, um, it's like it doesn't know how to handle it. So there are some quirks. So I just thought I'd like to share this. It's a great way to uh, analyze Game Boy, um, you know, wavetable instruments. Uh, and it's funny, though, because they're replicated through the N163. So uh, let's give that a listen.
So that about wraps up uh, things for N one sixth of your audio, I believe. Yeah, and we didn't really prepare like a closing statement for it. Um, just the one thing, like my own little personal discovery that again I'd like to reiterate is that uh, you know Erica To Saturo and King of Kings are the most noteworthy soundtracks from that selection because they use all eight channels. But um, but there's other good stuff in there uh, too that I think gets overlooked a bit because of that. And the ones that I like the most are um, Digital Devil Story, Megami Tensai 2, and San Goku Shi 2. Uh, you know, those are both great. Yeah, absolutely. Those are like those are two. I, I, I definitely know the King of Kings and Erica and Satoru uh, tracks better um, than uh, those things. So I'm probably going to have some listening I have to do <laughs> to those other ones. Cool. Yeah, uh, it's it's great. Like I I'm happy to have discovered them when uh, preparing for this episode. Yeah. So as some listeners have probably noticed, this episode is coming late, and there's actually two episodes in a row that are kind of late. I was really sick uh, when we were trying to prepare for the Sunsoft episode, and then after that, uh, you know, someone got fired at my work and I had to sort of pick up the slack, so I've had a crazy couple weeks here that were very busy. Um, So just apologies for that, and I would like to thank everyone for their patience. Um, You know, it's something we try to sort of uh, keep this show on track, but there's always, uh, you know, some bumps in the road that might set things back. But, um, you know, regardless of the schedule we have, you know, this is something we're not going to stop anytime soon. We're always going to have uh, a lot of things we'd like to talk about. Yeah, this is, you know, there's no chance that we're going to just like stop doing this. Right. It's like like, worst case scenario would be breaking from a regular schedule. Uh, You know, I don't have any announcements that I'm going to make on like, yes, we're keeping bi-weekly or uh, our schedule is too iffy right now and it's hard to keep that. Yeah. Uh, Where, you know, of course we want to try to keep a schedule, but regardless, episodes are going to keep happening anyways, so... Um, yeah, I mean, and it's just really like uh, when we have the time to do some of the research because we do exhaustive research for this stuff. So, you know, uh, you know, we want to make sure that the content is worth having an episode um, so that, you know, having the, the correct information or the information that gets a, a conversation starting sometimes could be time consuming. So, oh, absolutely. Uh, like yeah. preparing for this episode, for example, um, there were like a lot of days where I could have been looking more into the history and preparing audio examples, but mm-hmm. I was just sitting there ripping the instruments out of every n163 soundtrack just compiling like a little library of that and like um just because it's kind of fun you know like i don't know what i'm gonna find in there yeah um you know i wouldn't have known that that last soundtrack used all uh like recreations of just pulse waves like i I would probably would have missed that um so sometimes there's like a lot of research that goes into stuff that we might only talk about for like a minute in the episode, but maybe I probably spent like hours working on it like as a side thing. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's also how many times have we tried to go look up something and found nothing? There's, <laughs> you know, there's like, that too. Yeah. The, the dead end is such a, it's such a bummer, especially there's a lot of the composers on here are just, there's not many interviews with them um, or information. Cause a lot of these soundtracks while they're like in our hearts, really important or, you know, interesting, uh, just, you know, it, it, not to the general public, uh, who, the general, I shouldn't say general public, but the general people who listen to soundtracks, you know, like I don't see people pump in, you know, Erica and no. uh, Satoru. On, like, <laughs> we just like, definitely not. you know, yeah. like, I, I, like someone's on passing me on the street pumping it, you know, or something like that. Like, so, uh, you know, so the, that obscure information, especially on the secondary level of being obscure, cause it is, uh, you know, done by Japanese composers. 
uh, it creates barriers sometimes to our research. And then, you know, I looked up, I probably spent about three hours looking up the composers and the stories we had were the, that was it. <laughs> yeah, that's all we had. So, uh, you know, so, uh, long story short, you know, we're going to try to make sure we have great content and that's, you know, we'll continue to keep doing this cause we love this. So, yeah, absolutely. We're definitely going down like an esoteric rabbit hole discussing something like the N163. Um, you know, it's known to the people who look up sound expansion for the Famicom. Outside of that, not so much. Like, something that kind of surprised me, like, I love Crontendo's videos, and I love yeah. what, what he does. Like, it's really cool to document it's all amazing, these games, yeah. and it goes through their history. But what, my one little nitpick is, like, I watched, like, all of the N163 games that, you know, he has gotten through so far, and he hasn't once pointed out that they have additional audio. And it's just sort of like, oh, like, so even to, like, someone, like, doing a deep dive on these games, like, playing them, talking about them online, like, sometimes just the music is, like, a, a footnote. So it's a big deal to you and I and, you know, hopefully perhaps our listeners as well. But um, just, like, in sort of gaming history, like, this is way kind of out left field. Like, oh, it's, it's not that interesting to a lot of people. Like, I feel like something like the VRC 6 is interesting because it's mm-hmm. used in Castlevania 3, the Japanese version. Yeah. And that's, like, a famous game that everyone loves and, you know, deservedly so. That's one of my favorite mm-hmm games but uh yeah like this stuff is just sort of like you know it, it's a, a a footnote of history now yeah so. i mean it, it's interesting because um one of the other sources that i use for this a lot is i am error the the book by nathan uh altus i think that's how you say his name has a, a little expansion audio section which is kind of funny and of course that section credits patrick <laughs> actually uh, a couple of times and that's some of the different sections there which is really funny just from stuff that i must have talked about on my blog before i think right yep, yeah there, yeah there's a couple different things where it talks about the different i think it talks about pulse width modulation and i think it credits there uh, i'd have to look at the book but yeah you're definitely in there which is really funny that's pretty um, cool but just going with what you were saying though the mention of Namco audio in the entire book is a like a half a paragraph. Yeah, that does that doesn't surprise me. And I, it, like I get it, we care more about the audio than the average person. But at the same time, there's a lot of stories around here that we're not talking that people aren't collecting and talking about. So it's just you know, it, it, it. I wish I'm hoping that maybe our podcast will bring more interest towards that. Sometimes you know, I don't mean to get yeah, like, like in the sky it, about it, but you know, no, no, I definitely agree. Like if if someone listening to this is like an aspiring video game writer, historian, something like that, it's like if you can dig up more history on the N one six three, like that would be useful because that's information that's like not out there. Yeah, there's that's the thing that always impresses me about like video game history. There's all kinds of stories we don't know. Like yeah. we know a lot of what happened with Atari because people have talked, uh, you know, to people who worked at Atari, and there's amazing articles in the history. It, it is pretty well documented, almost month by month for Atari. But like Tose, no one knows what they did, you know. Right. Yeah, like, yeah, you know what I mean. Like there's not many people who have like there's no definitive book of the history of Tose, yeah. you know, as a company. Um, I feel like that's so, particularly frustrating just to people like you and I who are so focused on the audio. Because again, yeah. like if if you talk to people like, oh, you do you collect Famicom and NES games? Like, I don't think many people get that excited particularly about the ones that simply have expansion audio. Yeah, but like both you and I are like, oh my god, like these are the ones that matter. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, you know, and I, I I completely understand that. I mean, there's certain games like like I said, I I've collected all with the exception of that one N one six three game that we mentioned here. I've collected all the expansion audio games, and many of these were like bargain bin games when I was in Japan. You know, 
like, you know, these weren't games that people are like, oh my god. No, I mean, I think I got a copy of Madara in box in a condition for like nine dollars US when it all said and done. Oh, that's but awesome. to me that was like a treasure. You know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. <laughs> and it's just some art like unplayable RPG for me because I don't I'm not great at Japanese. So um but like <laughs> I had to have it and I'm sure people are like, why? You know? Um Anyway, this is a long way of saying that, you know, we're, we're here, we're going to keep doing this. And oh, we're yeah. Try to find yeah. The truth. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. We're not going to stop so, anytime soon, even if there are some road bumps in the schedule. So uh, let's move on to listener comments and feedback. We had some great comments from Curriculum Crasher. Uh, he found something really cool. Uh, we pointed out that the FDS game Dead Zone had like a lot of speech samples. Uh, there was another FDS game from Sunsoft as well that also had a lot of speech samples. And he actually found the person who created that speech synth- synthesis algorithm. Um, and so here's what he had to say. Dr. Moser's company, Electronic Speech Systems, provided the digitized speech samples for some Commodore 64 games like Impossible Mission and Ghostbusters as well. Um, so like that's a really interesting like rabbit hole that we could maybe go down. Something that I wasn't aware of at all. Um, the fact that this guy created like a speech synthesis program and his stuff is used in video games on across all sorts of platforms. Um, mm-hmm. So I definitely want to look that up more and read on that, uh, see what we can find out because that's like um, exactly what this podcast is about. I would love to learn more and share more about um, speech synthesis in early games. So that's a really cool finding. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's great. They have another comment, too, here, uh, kind of referring to uh, Akita Takeuchi, the sound programmer from Sunsoft. Uh, so, uh, it's really quite remarkable that he enabled their expansion into other consoles so quickly. Do you think the experience with FTS wavetables and more exploration of the DAC sample channel might be a natural springboard to programming the uh, uh, HUC 6282, I'm sorry, which is the TurboGrafx-16 or slash PC Engine uh, chip? Yeah, you know, and I responded saying like i think a familiarity with those two things would be helpful naturally um but hundred geek actually um provides a more technical response that breaks down why actually yes familiarity would help um mm-hmm. yeah so hundred geek says that the turbo graphics processor is based on the 65co2 cpu which belongs to the same family as the 6502 so he says that if you can do programming for the nes you can pretty much do it for the pce as well uh, the only difference is how the PC hardware is controlled uh, differently by the CPU um, from how it's done on, a, on the NES. So there's a little bit of difference, but it's very similar. Um, Vera Lovely has a comment. They mentioned, uh, Shocked to see you gloss over Hebereke. Um, the overworld theme has a part where the triangle channel snare is sneakily moved over to the sample channel for a few bars, so the song can temporarily have four-part harmony. Yeah, that's really cool. That's something I hadn't noticed in that soundtrack. Yeah. I have played the game through its entirety, um, but when we got to like that final stretch of Sunsoft soundtracks that I'll use the bass sample, I was like, oh, the episode's kind of long. I got to trim here. And I originally had just stuck in a Hebereke track, but wound up cutting it. Um, but yeah, I do like the soundtrack, and but I didn't know about that detail in the sound design. Um, so that, that's, that's, that's really cool. Those guys are always coming up with like amazing things. It doesn't surprise me. Yeah. You know, that that's such a cool trick. And, you know, everything we remember from that Sunsoft episode about how that team was really trying to push the envelope every single time they, they made a soundtrack. It doesn't surprise me they do something cool like that. Mm-hmm. That's that's high level stuff. Yeah. So in that episode, we pointed out how the uh, the sample channel plays like notes out of pitch, you know, mm-hmm. naturally. So you get that out of tune sound. 
Hundred uh, Geek says that they, he actually developed a new P DPCM pitching scheme to make the notes come out less sharp or flat by using pre-edited, slightly detuned samples mm -hmm. and only using slightly sharp uh, playback speeds. So Not he says bad. it leaves less notes to work with, but you get a lot more, uh, you know, notes that are in tune. So that's a that's a really clever workaround. Oh yeah, absolutely. So the next comment is by Crimson Ghost here. They say. The Batman TG16 soundtrack sounds like a Konami game, mainly Turtles in Time and Sunset Riders. I think it's because of the samples they use. Uh, there are some 80s pop songs that use those. When I hear those sounds, I, I have to play Turtles in Time. You know what it is? It's like that orchestra hit. Like and like, yeah. Turtles in Time abuses the living daylights out of it. Uh, Konami does, it. especially the uh, the Super Nintendo version of it, with the uh, like. There's so many orchestra hits just all over the place. Uh, and I think that that's what really reminds uh, reminds me of uh, you know those tracks. So I definitely hear the similarities. Oh yeah, and I think of like um, Super C on the NES, like that game is oh, yeah. laden with the, the orchestra hits. <laughs> <laughs> that's there, like, and you know how you 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 were telling me that you sometimes you go through the drum samples and you just hold the down arrow. Oh, and yeah. it makes like a like that one is in there, and I always recognize like if you do that because I did that after you said that. Um, you know, the, what we're talking about is there's a drum sample pack that was made actually by Patrick where it has a bunch of drum samples from a lot of NES games. <clears throat> and if you put it into, uh, if you load it in Family Tracker and you load it up as if you're going to insert those sounds into a different slot, you have to know a Family Tracker. If you hold the down arrow, it plays this like crazy song of all <laughs> the different notes because it plays every sample one after another in really fast succession. And I always remember, like, once I get to the Super C orchestra hits in there, it's like, that always pops out in my head. That's funny. You, um, you can still pick it out, even though it's, like, yeah. in there very, very briefly. And then, like, the bow, 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 like those, you know, as you're oh, yeah. going through, like, you know, Fester's Quest and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway. <laughs> that, that's great. So we're going to, here's another comment uh, by Curriculum Crasher. Um, these TG16 Kagayama tracks were so good, I went ahead and listened to all the tracks on the uh, .hes files for both games. Did you happen to notice that one of the unused sound test tracks for Outlive is Music 03 from uh, Benke Gaiden? Some of the wavetables and accompanying parts are different. It almost sounds like a beta of the track that would end up being used for Benke Gaiden. Both versions are really great. That's interesting, actually. Um, there's a lot, there's some other interest, instances of that kind of happening. Yeah, there's uh, something I, I didn't share in the episode because I'm saving it for a future episode. But uh oh, uh oh. Yeah, yeah, I'll just say that I did find another piece of in Kajayama's um, Turbo Graphics music that sounds a bit like some of his other music, and mm -hmm. uh, I will talk about that later on. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, so I want to read one last comment from Mike McDaniel here. Uh, he says, if you want to hear some good stereo Game Gear stuff, check out Pixelated Audio's latest show. That's cool. I'll, I'll find that and I'll link that here in the uh, comments. Um, yeah. He said, I would comment more often, but I listen with a podcast uh, catcher. It's part of my SoundCloud feed too, but I would just come uh, here on SoundCloud just to comment. Oh, thank you very much. He says, great show and Sunsoft uh, sure made progress since those early games. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, thanks Thanks for stopping. We love getting the all the various comments uh, and feedback on the episodes. It means a lot to us. So, um, yeah, like I know a lot of people listen with a with an app of some kind. Um, SoundCloud is pretty awful mobile. Like you can't do any, yeah, you can't do anything on the mobile. Yeah. Um, um, but I, I do really like having this as a home for discussion just because the fact that you can respond to a specific timestamp is amazing. Um, mm -hmm. um, so even though like 
different types of forms might be like more preferable to some people it's uh you know i definitely like having the timestamp comments yeah so. I, I think so too it, it, it does have like a level of simplicity to it um and that, that being said like you know it, if you know there is kind of a discussion always kind of going on in each one of the podcasts so you know if you don't have a soundcloud account just make one you can make one for free and just comment yeah you don't have to actually have anything posted on soundcloud to comment on here so yeah you know feel free to join in the discussion yeah absolutely like again i definitely sympathize with people who like prefer to listen mobile or whatever and can't jump in but you know uh, if there's something you want to say you, hopefully you, you're able to jump on a desktop for a minute and get that in there so um yeah thank you thank you everyone for the comments so that's about it for comments uh now let's move along to name that game let's listen to last episode's track So that was originally correctly guessed by Mr. Norbert 1994. Of course. That is, of course, that is Jackie Chan's Action Kung Fu uh, TurboGrafx-16 version level two theme. So well done. Uh, I would like to also give a shout out to Pinus. Uh, She commented um, a bit more recently. She also identified it. Um, Yeah. So thanks everyone for your participation. And uh, let's take a listen to this episode's track. So that wraps up Name That Game. Uh, Patrick, do you have a song of the week? Uh, yes, I've picked an N163 track here from Digital Devil Story, um, Megami Tensai 2. It is track 33 in the NSF, and I just thought it was a cool song, so I'd like to close out the episode with it. So uh, thanks everyone for listening to Retro Game Audio.